Hello, and welcome to episode 80 of the Reconomy podcast, where we discuss economic issues that impact real estate, housing, and affordability. I am Odetta Kushi, Deputy Chief Economist at First American, and today will be part three, the final episode of our three-part series where we answer audience questions. And of course, that means that the whole team is joining us again today. We've got Mark Fleming, our Chief Economist here with us. We've also got Xander Snyder, Senior Commercial Economist, and of course, Economist Ksenia Potapov. First of all, Happy New Year, everyone. It's officially 2024. I thought we'd never get here. I know. <laughs> After last year, good riddance. Yes, yes. Oh no, don't jinx it. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> Please no unprecedented events in 2024. We're Knock ready for precedented. <laughs> Yes. yes, exactly. Well, thank you all for joining us again. I'm really excited for today's episode. And today, instead of picking on Mark first, I'm yes. going to go to Xenia. And Xenia, you'll be answering our first question. And our first question is actually about migration patterns. What markets are experiencing strong net in migration and what markets are experiencing out migration? Right. So I think in a surprise to no one, um, the cities that experience the most in migration were in the Sun Belt, at least according to data from 2022. Um, these were cities like Austin, Dallas, Houston, a lot of Texas, Nashville, Raleigh, Jacksonville, a, a lot of these cities. And the cities that shrank the most were often larger, more expensive coastal cities like New York and Los Angeles are on the list, but not exclusively. Um, there was also New Orleans, Cleveland, Buffalo, so some of these smaller cities. Um, but when we're talking about some of these city migration flows, we're actually looking at a very large geographic area. So for all of those who read our blog posts, we often mention that this is a metropolitan area that we're looking at. Um, so for example, when we're talking about New York, that is actually the New York, Newark, Jersey City metropolitan area, which spans three whole states. Um, so it helps to break it down a little bit further into the kinds of areas within those metropolitan areas. So again, in 2022, urban areas in large cities saw the most population decline, um, which is, I believe, a surprise to no one. Again, um, this is a trend that we've seen since before the pandemic decline in urban cores, um, but it was accelerated during the pandemic. Um, and so it stands apart from the rest of the kind of mid-sized small cities and suburban areas, which all gained population. Um, so this is a trend that's been going on again before, since before the pandemic. And it also suggests that, again, you know, the millennials who really like to live downtown and it seemed like they would never follow their generational predecessors and move to the suburbs are actually doing that now. That's right. We are seeing that quite a bit. It's also interesting that you're seeing these migration flows. I'm assuming a lot of young people moving out of traditionally more expensive areas like New York and LA to Sunbelt markets where you're seeing not only good weather, but strong job growth uh, and and you know amenity growth as well, right? So you're seeing in a lot of the Texas markets uh, are, are booming. And so I, I find that very interesting. And in some cases, you've also got work from home, which allows you to work from somewhere else. Yeah, that's absolutely true. We've seen a lot of people move out to uh, less expensive markets because they can at this point. All right. Well, the next question is a little wonkier, which means it's going to Mark. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> so I took this question exactly as is here. And the, 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 uh, the writer wrote, one thing I never hear anyone talk about anymore is trade balances and imbalances. Do exports matter? Do imports matter? How does the strong dollar impact inflation for the average consumer? So Mark, put on your macro hat. 
That's like three or four questions in, in one, and it actually gets <laughs> to a little bit of a, um, a an issue or a, a way in which we measure the numbers. When we talk about GDP, and particularly over the last couple of years, have focused on where the GDP growth has gone negative, and if it goes negative for a couple of quarters, are we in a recession, which we've talked about is not the definition of recession. But one of the accounting measures is net exports or exports minus imports. But you have to be careful because actually imports don't matter at all. Imports were not made in this economy. They were made in some other economy. And so technically speaking, they do not count towards our GDP. The reason they are a negative minus imports in our economic accounting is our consumption numbers. We, the consumption dollars include the consumption of those foreign cars that we've bought. And therefore, it's a mere accounting necessity to extract the imports because they're in the consumption measure. So the answer to the question is no, the trade balance doesn't really matter. It's the export number that matters because obviously that is made here and does count as part of our economic activity. And to answer the last part of the question, it matters relative to the price of the dollar because when we export that good and the dollar is expensive relative to other uh, currencies, it makes our goods more expensive relative to their own domestic goods or vice versa. So exports is not, is not just about us making it, it's about how well we can sell it given the strength of the dollar. So those two things are actually tied in that sense. That's a really good and nuanced point for people who don't necessarily follow the national income accounting uh, methodology and like And we hopefully do. they never that? have to. The, but it also <laughs> means that we export inflation, right? Um, which is mm -hmm. something we have done historically over the last couple of decades. We've been able to export inflationary pressures by, by strengthening the dollar in the, or in the last couple of years, I should say. That's a good point. That speaks to the, the second part of their question mm -hmm. on, on uh, inflation. Okay, thank you for that, Mark. Uh, I think, is the next one for me? Uh, let's see, it is, it, it is. is. Rate lock-in effect, just how rate locked in are consumers and what could alleviate that effect? Nothing? They're, <laughs> uh, that's not true, there's one very specific thing that could alleviate it. Oh, okay, it. good. Rates going back down to three to 2%, mm. but that's, that's just that not gonna happening? happen. Yeah, very, exactly. very low. Uh, very, very low. So consumers, uh, existing homeowners rather, are very rate locked in. So about 90% of existing homeowners are locked into rates below 6%. Uh, and it's about 80% of existing homeowners that are locked into rates below 5%. Uh, rates in today's environment are you know, near 7%. And so a lot of these existing homeowners do not have a financial incentive to sell their home. And so they're, they're very rate locked in. Uh, in regards to what could alleviate this, there's a, a couple things that we like to look at. One is that 42% of owned homes are owned free and clear. So these individuals are not rate locked into their homes. They don't have a mortgage at all. And so they're they're free to move. Of course, they would be locking in a seven to whatever the mortgage rate is, seven to 8% mortgage rate. Uh, but uh, that is one potential way that the market could overcome this rate lock-in effect is through those uh, those homeowners that own their home free and clear. The other factor is that existing homeowners are sitting on a ton of equity at the moment. And so even there, though there's higher mortgage rates, they could potentially use that equity to bring a higher down payment to their next home 
which could, again, mitigate some of the impact from the rate lock-in effect. And of course, if you move to a less expensive market, you know, Ksenia was just mentioning migration patterns. If you move from my market, for example, Washington, D.C. to, let's say, Buffalo, New York, uh, you know, I could take that equity with me and maybe that could help to mitigate the higher mortgage rate environment as well. So uh, it's not hopeless. And, and general consensus expectations are that rates will come down next year. It just likely won't be enough to uh, to unlock all of these existing homeowners. Buffalo. All right. Buffalo. Bu Buffalo. <laughs> Go Bills. <laughs> All right, Xander, this next one's for you, and it's all about maturing debt, specifically maturing office debt. How much risk does it pose to the industry and the overall economy? Right, well, in 2023 alone, by, by the end of the year, about $190 billion worth of office debt will have matured, and that includes everything, bank-held, non-bank-held, commercial mortgage-backed securities, or CMBS. And in 24 and 25, an additional 210 billion or so in office debt is expected to mature. So I think the consideration is, how is this gonna impact the lenders? And the first thing to keep in mind is that about half, actually a little bit more than half of all outstanding office debt is held by non-bank lenders. So life insurance companies, investor lenders, um, mortgage REITs, for example. Now, the reason that it's important to keep that in mind is because as it relates to the risk to the broader economy, the systemic risk from a lot of mortgage uh, maturities occurring and then those office owners having to refinance at higher rates and maybe not being able to get that loan is what happens to the lender. And uh, fortunately, uh, there, there's only about a third of all outstanding office debt is held by small banks and the larger banks have actually already pulled back commercial real estate lending meaningfully over the last couple of years so the the takeaway from all of those numbers is is that there there are risks to banks uh, and and non-bank lenders when these mortgages come due but they will probably typically be at smaller banks and they probably won't re represent contagion risk of the sort that we saw in the great financial crisis because you don't have the the trillions of dollars of notional derivatives on top of the mortgage uh, on top of the mortgages that exist there are new capital requirements in place that didn't exist then so i don't think that we're we're uh, free and clear yet we're not through the worst of it i think there will be real risks but i don't see it becoming systemic and widespread to the extent that we saw uh, in 2008, 2009. All right, some some sort of good news and 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 a lot of bad news. Uh, and you managed to sneak in derivatives into the conversation. So I'll. <laughs> You're well. Notional. Yes, exactly. I think, I think the word notional. notional derivatives. <laughs> I got to go look that up. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Thank you, Xander. Uh, Mark, this one goes back to you, and the question simply asks. Recession risk, question mark? I assume that's asking you if you think that recession risk is higher or lower. Um, so I think we need take to- Take it away. I think we need to talk about wisdom of the crowds and, and cows in this particular answer. Yes. <laughs> um, there is this belief that you can gain more by asking from the wisdom of predictions from the crowd than from experts. And a study was famously done where you ask uh, at the Iowa State Fair, a bunch of random people how much the cow weighed. And they gave a variety of answers from one pound to hundreds of thousands of pounds, because who knows how much a cow weighs? I don't really know. 
And then they asked a bunch of the farmers who should know how much cows weigh. And it turned out that the average answer from those who had no expertise was actually more accurate than that of the so-called experts. So now we will turn to the so-called experts on recession risk, AKA all of us economists. And the odds are suggesting that when you survey them, they say, yes, it's less likely or but there's a lesser chance than of a recession in the next 12 months now, 12 months from now, as there was, say, six or nine months ago. But I must caution that we have been notoriously bad at predicting recession risk. My own personal opinion is I don't think that there will be a recession in the next 12 months. We have to put some sort of a number on it because it's not as if we've broken the business cycle. There will be a recession at some point, um, but not due to the monetary tightening policy that we've seen on the part of the Fed in large part because the Fed is likely done at this point with most of, if not all of its monetary policy tightening and the economy has held up extremely well to it. So a soft landing next year is what you're predicting. I suppose if you have to put the label on it, they are saying it's a, a soft landing, yes. All right, well, that's that's a good one. We'll take that. And this next question, I actually would, would love to take this next one. It's an interesting one. Uh, it is, how do you explain new home building as the bright spot at the same time there is lower builder sentiment? There seems to be a disparity there. That's a really interesting question because we saw in in you know the the latter latter half of, of 2023 we saw homebuilder sentiment uh, stay quite low and, and and decline, whereas single family permits and starts were indicating cautious optimism. So what's going on? Well, one thing that might be going on is that the the survey for the the builder sentiment is. Uh, a, a survey of smaller builders. So the median number of housing starts for builders was six. Uh, and so this survey of smaller builders, but it's really the big builders that are outperforming in today's market due to their ability to offer incentives. And so, you know, you're seeing housing starts and permits do quite well. You're seeing builder sentiment very, very low. Part of that discrepancy could be due to the methodology behind the survey, which is serving smaller builders compared to uh, the larger builders, which, as I mentioned, are faring uh, better in today's market. Sample design. Sample, Sample design, design, exactly. But you know, it's important to note that traditionally that builder sentiment does track quite well with housing starts and, and permits, but uh, this, this market of 2023 has been anything but normal. Okay, Ksenia, this is a, a great question as well. There's a lot of talk of how it makes more financial sense to rent versus to own in today's market. Do you agree? What is the value of homeownership? So as we all know, part of the decision to um, to become a homeowner is financial. Um, so there's a couple of ways to look at the be a renter, be a homeowner, which one is better question. Um, so one angle from which you can look at it is, you know, this is a financial decision and it's mostly based on your, on your monthly payment. Can you afford to pay a mortgage and everything associated with owning a house month to month? And what is it in relation to what you might pay for rent? Um, and so in our rent versus own analysis, we do just that. We compare the monthly cost of renting and the cost of owning. Now, mind you, this is not the cost of buying a home or any of the closing costs associated with it. This is just the cost of living in that home month to month. So the, the mortgage payment, taxes, um, homeowners insurance, uh, repair costs, et cetera. 
And so according to this analysis, in the third quarter of 2023, it was better to own nationally. Um, so it meant that it was actually cheaper month to month to own a home than to be a renter. Of course, this depends widely city to city because real estate is local. So what we saw in the third quarter was actually that cities where it was better to own were those where house price appreciation was relatively high and high enough to offset the cost of a 7% mortgage rate. Um, and also, generally, these were cities where house prices were already relatively low. So we're talking about cities like Buffalo again, um, Cleveland, St. Louis. <laughs> yes, so did. Go Bills! <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Um, and on the flip side, um, it was cheaper to rent in cities that were typically more expensive and also had uh, low or negative house price appreciation. So these were places like Phoenix, Austin, uh, Denver, Seattle. Um, and now an important part of that calculation is actually the house price appreciation bit, because this is something that the renter does not have. If you own a home, you also benefit from equity gain as your home appreciates, you also, an asset that you own appreciates. And this is a large reason why homeownership is touted as one of the most effective ways of building wealth, especially for a low-income household. Um, we see this in some of the wealth data in the Survey of Consumer Finances that recently uh, came out in October with a 2022 update that uh, homeowners on the whole have um, 38 times the wealth of a renter and homeowners are also wealthier than renters at every income category. So if you take a homeowner household and a renter household who earn the same income, the homeowner household will be wealthier because they own an asset that is steadily appreciating. So it's not surprising. So all in all, um, the evidence points to um, homeownership as being an incredibly beneficial financial decision. I say that as the only renter here. <laughs> <laughs> one day, Kenya, one day. When we yes. miraculously find all of that new supply as people become yes. unrate locked in. <laughs> Un <laughs> yes. Thankfully, I can wait 10 time, years. Right? <laughs> <laughs> or wait 10 years. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, this is. That sounds a little like uninversion. Reversion. 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 Yeah. And this is your episode of First American Grammar. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sandra, the last question goes to you. What do you see as the time frame for price discovery in commercial real estate, and will it vary meaningfully by asset class? Great question. I think this is tied closely to the question that I just answered a little while ago about mortgage maturities. And the basic reason is this. Right now, there's a big disconnect in terms of what buyers think properties are worth and what sellers think properties are worth. And that's basically why transaction volume is very low right now. If you are a prospective seller, if you are an owner that doesn't have you know great refinancing options right now, and your mortgage isn't maturing for a year or two, you might just wait and see. Wait, you know what happens? Maybe rates will come back down in the future. Who knows? Um, it is when those sellers or prospective sellers, the owners, no longer have that wait and see option when they ha they are forced to come to market and they become what I like to call a motivated seller. They have some motivation to actually sell. So a lot of the deals that are happening right now, there might be seller motivations. For example, a high net worth individual might just be not interested in owning a building or a fund might be closing. So these are the sorts of deals that are occurring right now. Now, 
as these mortgage maturities happen and essentially remove that option to wait and see from a lot of the existing owners, that's when we're going to begin to see transaction volume pick back up. And if you look at the pace of maturities over the next year or two, uh, as I mentioned, there's a lot coming in 2024 and 2025. There's even more in multifamily than an office. I think it's about $500 billion in multifamily mortgages come due in 24 and 25, but multifamily is a much bigger market than office. So that's part of it. Um, but as those come due, a lot of owners are going to say, okay, well, what are my refinancing options? Do I have refinancing options? And if they don't, then, you know, they might hand keys back to the lender. They may try to restructure, but it's that pace of mortgage maturities plus whatever the, the lag time that follows to work out the loan or for the bank to uh, sell the property to as the, the collateralized property, you figure we will probably see transaction volume begin to pick up towards the end of 24 and into 25, factoring in that maybe six to 12 month lag period after when the mortgage maturities occur. So it's it's closely related to when a lot of the debt comes due unless rates come back down, in which case I imagine that would be the primary driver of volume picking back up. And I think you suggested that faster in multifamily than, say, office because there's more loans coming due in that asset class. Yeah. And additionally, I think the quality of distress that we'll see in multifamily is quite different than an office because uh, if we're heading towards a recession and multifamily prices correct meaningfully, then, you know, there's still demand to have an apartment and live. We, you know, we need places to live. We need places to live, but we've already established we may not need those places to work in those offices. And therein lies the problem. That's right. The supply exactly. demand, it comes all back to supply and demand dynamics. Always. For office have really meaningfully changed, not as much for multifamily. That doesn't mean people won't lose money, but it means that people might be able to get in uh, at a good cost basis for apartment properties at the beginning of a new cycle. That sounds more like an end of a business cycle problem than what office is facing. That's a good point. It's, you know, commercial real estate is not a monolith, and so it's always important to look at these dynamics by asset class. Exactly. Thank you, Xander. All right, well, that was that's all the time we have for, for Q&A today. I know. I hope we were able to shed some light on a number of different topics ranging from residential and commercial real estate. Thank you all, Mark, Xander, Ksenia, uh, for, for being on this series altogether. We'll have to do this more often. Um, I had a lot of fun. I don't know about you guys. And to the audience, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Reconomy podcast. You can check out our blog posts on firstam.com slash economics. And as always, if you can't wait for the next episode, you can follow us on X. It's at Odetokushi for me, at M Fleming Econ for Mark, at Xander Snyder X for Xander, and at Ksenia Podopo for Ksenia. Until next time. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Reconomy Podcast from First American. We're pleased to offer you even more economic content at firstam.com economics. This episode is copyright 2023 by First American Financial Corporation. All rights reserved.